0: You have your Bibles, grab them, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to finish chapter 1 out today. Excited about that. Uh, when I turned 18 years old, one of the things, for whatever reason, that I was super excited to do was go and buy one of those scratch-offs. And so I turned 18 years old, and I hit the, the closest gas station to buy our house, and I grabbed a penny, and I went in there, got me one of them dollar scratch-offs, and thought I was going to hit it big. And I, I don't think I want anything, but I remember being in there, and I remember seeing those other kinds of mach- you know gambling machines, and I remember seeing people who would go in and spend all kinds of money on those machines and all kinds of money on lottery tickets and, and whatnot, and and I just remember not quite understanding why you would do that. You know, I spent a dollar on my scratch-off. I'm not sure why you would go and spend your whole paycheck, but and then it kind of dawned on me that for these people, they would go in there and place all of their hope that morning or that afternoon on winning it big, on hitting it big. They would put all of their hope in that today would be the day that everything changed. That today would be the day that they would hit it big and be able to pay off all those old debts. They'd be able to go buy that car. But for the majority of people, their number is never called. You see, we all need hope. And every one of us in this world places our hope in something different. We all need hope. But for us as Christians, hope is not something that we think might happen. Hope is not something that we think there are are pretty good odds that this is going to happen. Hope is not something that is likely to happen. For a Christian, our hope is a certainty. Our hope is a fact our hope will come to pass, it will happen. This morning, I want us to see that when we put first things first, over the past three weeks, we've seen that we've got to get the gospel first, that we've got to follow the real Jesus, and that we've got to understand exactly what he did for us. And when we put that stuff first, we will find that we have hope like no one else in this world does. We will find that we have a hope that is secure and sure. This, this morning, I want us to see three things in this text, three areas of hope, hope in the midst of suffering, hope to grow in maturity, and hope that we can make a difference. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, the words of our God, written by Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, say this. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Father, bless your word to the glory and honor of Christ this morning. Enlighten our eyes, enlighten our ears, that we would hear it afresh and see it anew. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing we see this morning is that only through Christ can we have hope in suffering. Verse 24 says, Paul says, now I rejoice in my suffering. One of the amazing things, if you've ever seen these documentaries, I've heard these stories about missionaries in, in other parts of the world who uh, are, are arrested. Right? Maybe you've seen on the news the pastor that was just released from, from uh, jail this week. But people like that who have been thrown in jail who are tortured, right? who, are, who, who are, are stripped naked, who are beaten, who are sometimes uh, brutally tortured. You'll hear these stories about how they've found a, a, a piece of the Bible ripped out, right, and they've just got this tattered, and they'll fold it up, and they'll hide it from the guards. And they'll pass it from one inmate to the next so that they can read it and, and find comfort and encouragement in that. And, and they will they'll read that, and they'll find hope in that. And that no matter how long they've been in prison, no matter how much they're tortured, they don't ever give in. They'll be in jail, and though they've been beaten for doing this, they'll do it again. They'll keep singing hymns. And they'll keep singing and keep rejoicing. And with Paul, they somehow rejoice in their sufferings. Because in Christ, we'll see there is always hope. Paul, the guy who wrote this text, he understood what it meant to suffer. I mean, guys, this is a guy who had been shipwrecked and almost died. Who had been bitten by a poisonous snake and almost died. Who had been stoned and left for dead twice. Now picture that for a moment, right? You're on the ground, and everyone picks up a bunch of rocks and begins to throw them at you until they think you're dead. They've hit him with rocks. So I'm not talking like little rocks. I'm talking rocks. They'll hit you with rocks so many times they thought he was dead, and so they left his body there. And when he came to, he crawled himself away. That happened to him twice. This is a man who had been arrested countless times, who had been flogged which is a whip that is full of glass and pottery and broken bones. They would hit you with that as it would rip your skin off. Paul understood what it meant to suffer. He goes through all of these things and more, and yet he says, I rejoice in my suffering. How is it that Paul is able to rejoice in the midst of suffering? Well, he says in verse 24, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body For the sake of the church. You see, Paul knows that no matter what trials he faces, no matter what hardships come, no matter what storms he is going through, that God is at work. Here's the thing. God does not drive an ambulance. What happens when you drive an ambulance? You get a call and you respond to crisis, right? You get the call that something happened and you've got to go and make it better. God doesn't drive an ambulance. He isn't caught off guard. He isn't responding to crisis. He is in control. He is not surprised by anything. He is in control. He is on his throne. God's purposes are moving forward. No one or nothing can slow down, stop, or thwart the purposes of God. You see, Paul's imprisonment was not a random act of bad luck. His sufferings were not an unfortunate circumstance. And everything that he experienced, God was at work. God was on the move and the same is true in your life you have suffering you have pain you have hardships you have trials you have storms and they are not random and they are not without purpose they are not pointless verse 24 tells us that his sufferings were for the sake of the church You see, we don't know exactly uh, uh, what that means. There's a lot of speculation. For instance, maybe Paul's imprisonment, maybe it helped the church because it took the attention off the church like here in Colossae. Maybe it took uh, uh, the, the bad guy's attention off them, and they were so focused on Paul that Colossae was able to grow and flourish and learn about Jesus. But whatever the reason, Paul is saying, listen, it's okay, I can endure any hardship that comes my way because it's not random. And it's not without purpose. It's God at work. And God's work is always good even when I can't see the good. Paul would echo this same truth. And you, you know the verse, Romans eight twenty-eight. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Right? He doesn't say everything's going to be good. But rather that all things, everything in your life is working toward a good See, as Lewis says it this way, some say that no future bliss can make up for suffering. Right, get that. that. Some say that no future bliss can make up for present suffering, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backward and turn even that agony into a glory. You see, sometimes we're able to see here and now exactly how God used our trials, our storms. You can look at your storm and you can see exactly what happened and go, okay, I see what God was doing. But most often we don't. Most often we go through difficult things, we go through difficult seasons and we have no idea how God could ever use this for good. But one day, one day when we get to heaven, God will take you and he'll point you back and he'll say, remember that. And he'll show you what he was doing and you'll go, oh, aha. And you will finally see that the clock will turn backward and turn even your greatest agony into a glory. No one understands this better than Jesus himself. On Jesus' darkest day, he was sold out by one of his dearest friends, so afraid of what was coming at the cross that Jesus literally sweated blood. He was falsely arrested, abandoned by his friends, flogged, spit upon, stripped naked, crucified, lungs filled with blood, killed separated from the father on the cross and in the midst of so much pain and so much suffering and so much evil on the midst of the most horrific moment in history God, it was God's greatest triumph. When the world looks at the cross and sees defeat God says victory. The greatest tragedy of human history was God's greatest triumph because in this tragedy he was redeeming the whole world. You see, no matter the suffering you face, Jesus is on his throne and God is at work. This is important because outside of Christ, you have no hope. Outside of Christ, when there are people who believe that all of this, this world, is is the result of a random act of circumstances, that the right atoms and molecules collided and created everything, When we believe that, when we think that way, that means everything that bad that happens to you is pointless, random, and doesn't matter. But when you trust in Christ, you see that it's not random, it's not pointless, and it does matter. That God is on his throne, that he's working. He's not surprised, he's not responding. But there's a point. You know, it's one of the saddest things in the world to watch people apart from Christ go through suffering. I had a friend who uh, worked in a hospital um, as a chaplain, and she would tell me how she would go into the hospital room right before a major surgery, right, or someone who was on their deathbed, and she said it was immediately clear whether or not they were a Christian. It was abundantly and immediately clear in that moment whether, where they placed their hope because she would walk into some rooms and she would feel the sadness, feel the hopelessness feel the 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 fear and then she would walk into other rooms people facing surgery that they don't know if they're going to come out of it and yet they would smile and yet there would be a lightness to the room and she would even hear people say you know it's okay if it doesn't go well i'm ready to go home Those two rooms are vastly different because one has no hope and the other has hope that is certain. What do you place your hope in? Where's your hope this morning? Do you have it? Is it certain? Is it certain that when your friends fail you, when you lose your job, when the hurricanes keep coming and blow your house down, when the doctor comes into the room and he says, I have the results, And they're not good. I've got the test back and it's not good. You have six months to live. And when you stand beside the graves of those you lost, do you stand there as someone who has hope or do you stand there as one who has no hope? We believe in trust and hope in a God who can and who has raised the dead. And so when you stand over the grave of your loved ones who have trusted in Christ, you don't. You don't weep as one without hope. You weep as one who is sad but knows victory day is coming. I read this article about this man who was not a follower of Jesus, who, who lived a really rough life. And it was really hard on his family because his family, his wife and his children were Christians. They went to church and they always went without him and, and they were following Jesus and he thought it was all rubbish and all silly and wanted nothing to do with it. Well, one day they were all horseback riding and, and, and he was having a good time and, and he got that horse moving pretty quickly. And he's, he's riding and galloping through the field and for whatever reason, that horse put the brakes on and just stopped on a dime and he went flying over. When he hit the ground, he immediately went, went into a coma. And he was in a coma for two weeks. His family so sad around him, having no hope. And when he woke up, he opened his eyes and the first words out of his mouth were, I believe. See, if he would have died, his family would have never known. But he opened up and he said he believed because in the moments he said, flying off that horse, in the seconds before he hit the ground, he said, I believed in Jesus. And his life was completely different. From that point on, he's followed Jesus the rest of his life. You see, we never know how God is going to work. We never know in what crazy circumstances God is going to work. But in Christ... Even in suffering, even in pain, even when days are hard, we can have hope. The second thing we've got to see is that in Christ, not only do we have hope in suffering, but we have hope that we can change. My buddy uh, in, in Kentucky used to work at UPS, and he said one night he was sharing with his friend. He had this friend from Africa, and he was sharing with him all of his frustrations about his church, You know, they they get upset about this and upset about that and worry about this and worry about that and we just can't focus and just complaining and complaining and complaining. They said when he was done, his buddy from Africa looked at him in just one of those thick African accents that I'm not going to try to do said, Marty, if you ever find a perfect church, don't go because you'll mess it up. And he said that just hit him between the eyes and he's like, oh my gosh, you're totally right. You see, the problem in a lot of churches is that we think everyone else is the problem. But in reality, do you know who the biggest problem in this church is? It's me. Our biggest problem in this church is me. And when you answer that question of who's the biggest problem in this church, you know who you need to point to? You need to point to you. You see, we are all vastly unaware of just how deep our sin runs how self-centered we are. Our greatest problem is that we think everyone else is the problem. But in Jesus, we have hope that our eyes can be turned to our faults and that we can change, we can grow in spiritual maturity. Notice verses 27 and 28. Paul says to them, God shows to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, him. We proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You see, the first thing to notice here is change is possible. He says that his goal is to present everyone mature in Christ, but maturity does not come without change. When I was a child, I did childish things, but maturity meant that I changed and I stopped doing the things I did as a child. See, spiritual maturity is more than growing up, it is changing little by little into something else. The Bible says that we are all being conformed into the image of Christ. And see, this is for everyone. In the verse, he says, everyone literally three times. And if you are in Christ, there is hope that we can change and mature. Some of us, we feel stuck. We feel stuck. We feel like there, there are uh, these sin issues or sin patterns or problems that we have, and we're just stuck in them. And we try to change for a little while, and we, we maybe do a little bit, but then we just revert back. And we want to know how to get out of the pattern, out of the pattern that we've been stuck in. But Paul is telling us that there is hope for maturity, that his goal for the church is to be that everyone would be mature in Christ. I was reading this book called Christless Christianity. Christless Christianity. And he opens it up and he says, If, if Satan had his way in the world, do you know what it would look like? Do you, if, if the devil could do whatever he wanted to in the world, do you know what it would look like? He says, I think it would look far different than you think. He said, There would be no more bars. No strip clubs, no more drugs, no more drug addicts or drug dealers. There'd be no crime. He said there'd be a church on every corner and everyone would be in attendance on every Sunday morning, but Christ would not be preached. You would have a church full of rules and regulations, a church full of everyone dressing the right way, saying the right things, doing the right things with no Jesus. You see, because if the devil can get you there and make you feel safe, make you feel like you have hope and not, he's got you right where he wants you. you. See, the devil comes to us. His strategy to keep you from growing, from maturing, to give you a life with no hope, to, to help you to stay in condemnation as he comes and he whispers in your ear again and again Look at your life, man. You are a mess. How could God ever love you? You've got to clean yourself up before he'll take you. He whispers in your ear, he won't take you like this. Can you believe what you've done? He says that because he wants you to keep the focus on you. He wants you always evaluating your performance so you can see how much you don't live up. But do you know what Paul says in response? He says, In verse 28, Christ in you, the hope of glory, him we proclaim. You see, Paul believes that Christ is sufficient to bring you hope to mature and to change. Christ alone is enough. And so we've got to know who we are in Christ. You've heard me talk about this. Romans 8.1 says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you are in Christ and you understand what that means on your worst days, God is not angry with you. On your worst days, God is not disappointed in you, church. But so often we beat ourselves up and beat ourselves up. And think, Oh, I gotta do better. Oh, I gotta do better. But you have to start at the place of looking at who you are in Jesus. That his blood was shed for you. And that he's wiped away all of your sin and he's given you his righteousness. And you are perfect in his sight. You are blameless in his sight. And you gotta get the attention off of you. And look to him. It doesn't say for those who obey, for those who have great faith, for those who are good. It says those who are in Christ. And until you believe that, not just in your head, but in your heart, in your gut, you won't change. Because you'll continue to believe what the devil says, that he could never love you. You see, Paul proclaims Christ knowing that his gospel are the only things that can change you. I love what Steve Brown says when he says that The only way you will ever change is when you realize that if you never change, God will love you anyway. The only way you will ever change is when you realize that if you never change, God will love you anyway. And only when you get that will it set you free to actually change. It will set you free to actually grow. When the pressure is off and when you can relax, knowing that God is not keeping a naughty and a nice list, That when he's not keeping record and a tally of every time you screw up, only then can you be set free to change. You see, here's what he's doing. You see, there is a, a future version of you in heaven right now. There's the perfect version of you. And God is taking that and he's bringing it into the present and he's putting it in you right now. He's taking the future version of you and making you into that right now. And here's kind of how it works. Jesus comes to an area of your heart and claims, and he says, this is mine. And we come and we attack him and attack him and say, no, you can't. You have no reign here, Jesus. This is mine. I want this. You can't have this. And Jesus just says, peace. You're mine. And we say, no, no, no. And he says, peace, you're mine. Until he wins that part of our heart. And then he moves to the next. And our hearts fight him and fight him and say, you have no rain here. And he says, peace, you're mine. And he does that until he wins every part of your heart, every part of your life. You see, it's hard to see yourself grow. We get so discouraged because we want to grow, but watching ourselves grow is, trying, is like watching paint dry. It seems hopeless. But when the Bible talks about growth, it often talks about plant growth, Right? It talks about plants growing. But do you remember as a kid, when you were in, in elementary school and the class all had those little cups and you would put the dirt in and put the seeds in and everybody's sitting on the, all the teachers know exactly what I'm talking about. And you put it on the windowsill and you, you go in every day and watch it. And every day the kids come in like, yay! And they look at it and they're like, aww. And they don't see anything. And like for weeks they're coming in like, let's see the plant! Aw. Until they kind of forget about it. And the teachers had to go water it because they forgot to go water it. And one day, some kid just happens to be over there, and they goes, Guys, come here! And all the kids are running over, and they're like, Oh, my gosh, it's like this tall, right? And it's huge, and it's like, How did this happen? It went from nothing to, like, huge. You see, what we learn about plant growth is two things. One, it is slow. It is gradual, but it's inevitable. And your growth is the same. You try to watch yourself and say, I'm going to grow. You're not going to see it tomorrow. You're not going to see it the next day. You, can, you can't see growth happen. You can only recognize that it has happened. And so six months from now, look at yourself and see, have you grown? Have you matured? Because it's slow, but it's inevitable. It's slow, it's gradual, but it will happen. We never see growth as it happens. We only recognize that it has happened. And if you are in Christ, change is not only possible, it's inevitable. God is maturing us through Jesus. And notice what he says. He says, we are warning everyone and teaching everyone. We get teaching, right? We get teaching. We understand teaching. That's not a big deal. But he says, warning everyone. What does that mean? It means to admonish or to confront or to call to correction. And no one in this room likes to be called out. Amen? I'm going to get y'all in. Uh, we're going to work on that. Nobody in this room likes to be called out. Right? We talk about, like, uh, what is that? That proverb talks about iron sharpening iron. Like, oh yeah, you know, we're all about iron sharpening iron. Do you know what happens when iron sharpens iron? Sparks fly. Right? It's a violent thing. No one likes to be confronted. No one likes to be called out. But sometimes friends, sometimes strangers, sometimes enemies, God is using to confront us with the truth. Maybe there is an attitude we need to change. Maybe an an action we need to correct. Maybe forgiveness we need to extend. And sometimes that correction comes with gentle nudges, and sometimes it comes a little harsher. But no one likes it. We get defensive and angry. You don't know me. You don't know what you're talking about. We get defensive and angry, but God is often using these things to grow us. Usually it takes me a a week to realize that they're right and another week to admit it, maybe longer, depending on what it is. I can remember the first time this happened to me. I was 16 years old, and I was like the leader of my youth group. I was like the man, right? In my own mind, I thought I was the man. And after church, I had a girlfriend, and and we were in the parking lot. I'm leaning against my car, you know, looking all cool because I got a car like some old Raggedy car, right? And I'm leaning against it. And she's standing right here kind of in between my feet. And we're not doing anything bad. We're just talking. And Frank, this guy, he comes by and he rolls down his window and he points his crooked finger at me. I mean, that thing was crooked. And I don't even remember the words that he said, but he got on to me. And I was like, who the heck does this guy think he is? Right, because I think I'm all that in a bag of chips. I'm serving, I'm doing this, I'm teaching, I'm playing music, I'm doing, and I've never even seen this guy before. Who do you think you are? I'm not even doing anything wrong, I'm just standing here. And so I go to my mentor at the time, who was our worship pastor, and I told him, I said, man, this dude, big old crooked finger, come call me. I didn't do anything. Call me out. He's an old man. I did not like old people at the time. God has softened my heart. And so I go, I go to my mentor and he and he looks at me and he says, Oh, that's Frank. I said, Frank. He says, Oh, that's Frank. He goes, He's the most godly man I've ever met. <laughs> We're talking about the wrong guy, man. We're talking about the wrong guy. He's like, no, no, he's the most godly man I've ever met. And he goes, I want you to go have lunch with him. I was like, yeah, I, I ain't going to talk to this guy. I was so angry, so offended, that he would call me out in front of my girlfriend, right? That's humiliating. Well, I went to lunch with him. And what I learned was that Frank was sincere, nice. His fingers were crooked because he had arthritis really bad in his hand. And he fought in World War II. He was in the Navy. And and he really, really loved Jesus. And Frank really, really wanted to see the youth group grow and really wanted to see people come to faith. And I realized that Frank had a point that even though I wasn't doing anything wrong, that appearances mattered. And there are times in our lives where God is going to confront you and you're not gonna like it. But he does that to make you grow because growth is possible. Can I tell you my goal for every one of you in this room and the people who aren't in this room yet? It's Paul's goal, it's God's goal to present every one of you mature in Christ. And so i uh, there gonna be times I push a little harder, from this platform or in person. There's gonna be times that other people push you. But what is God trying to teach you? You see, what we see in this text is that there is hope in suffering, that there is hope to change. And my last point, which is about six pages, we're gonna cut it down to thirty seconds. There's hope to make a difference. He says in the text, "Him we proclaim." Do you know how we accomplish everything in this church? Do we know how we accomplish being able to face suffering, how to grow, how to reach reach our community? We proclaim Christ. That's it. That's it. We can have fancy screens. We can have cool music. We can have a great auditorium. None of that matters unless we proclaim Christ. And if we do, God can change the world. And so let me ask you this question. Where has God placed you in your life, in this season, for you to proclaim Christ? Where you live, where you work, where you play, and anywhere in between, he has placed you there for the expressed purpose to share Jesus so that people can have hope and suffering and hope that they can, that through their suffering they can grow. Through their suffering they can come to know Jesus, and they can grow. There was a man who was a terrorist, and then I'm done. Y'all hang out with me. There's a terrorist, and he saw it as his mission to kill as many people as possible that would interfere with his religion. And he would recruit other men to come and to kill and to torture and to slaughter anyone who stood in his way, anyone who disagreed with his religion. There was hope for that man, because that man wrote this book. That man wrote the letter we just studied this morning. His name was Paul, and God saved him. And if God can save a terrorist like Paul, he can save me and you. He can save your neighbor and your coworker. He can save your children if we proclaim Christ and him crucified and him raised from the dead. This morning, there may be some of you in this room and you are in the middle of a storm. We're all either going into one or in one, or coming out of one, and you don't know how to face suffering, let me just tell you, it's not without purpose. Let me just tell you, I don't know what's going on, but I can tell you God is not surprised. He's, he doesn't drive an ambulance. He doesn't respond to crisis. He's got it under control. He already sees the end. There may be some of you in this room, and here's the deal. You, you should be swimming in the deep end right now but you're in the kiddie pool. You're supposed to be in the deep end because you've been in this church a long time, but you're swimming in the kiddie pool and that's nasty and gross in the pool. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Y'all, we know what kind of water's there and it's always gross to see a 45 year old man lounging in the kiddie pool. How y'all doing? You know, that's, that's weird. But it's devastating in the church. One, because we have people who should be leading who are not doing anything and two, we have people that are leading and they don't know how to swim. And so if you're here and you want to grow, let me just give you the simplest way. Find a small group. Sunday school class, we're going to do home groups at some point soon. Find a community of people to press into Jesus more and more and more. Run to him. Keep doing it. You will grow. You won't see it tomorrow, but you'll see it'll happen. If you're here this morning and you want to pray, you want to Kneel at these steps. You want to pray with me? I'd love to pray with you. Our deacons will be up here. They'd love to pray with you. If suffering in your life, or if you want to know Christ, if you want to have hope that when when you lay in that hospital bed and you've got to face that heart surgery and you want to have the kind of room that isn't full of fear and anxiety but full of hope, come and throw yourself at Jesus' mercy. It's not too late. He doesn't expect you to clean up. He'll clean you up. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you're the kind of God who loves the unlovable, that loves the dirty and the filthy and the broken. But God, sometimes it's hard for us to admit that. We don't like to think of ourselves as broken, dirty, filthy. We like to think of ourselves as good people. But God, would you wake us up to show us that we're not? (laughs) That if people could see the inside of us, they'd be terrified. They would be, dumbfounded and shocked if they could see what was really inside of us. But God, you see it, and you still love us. God, this morning, would you give us hope? If there's anyone in this room that doesn't have hope, God, would you give them hope this morning? If there's anyone in this room in the midst of suffering, God, we pray that you would give them hope. I pray your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand and sing together. I invite you to come if you need to.